How many of you want God to hear us from heaven? Let me see your hand. How many of you want him to forgive the sin of this country? How many of you want him to heal our land? Well, there's a contingency to that. Why is there a contingency to that? Because the little verse that we know so well has been referenced here already this morning. That verse hangs on a little conjunctive adverb. And you English teachers can correct me, and I'm, you know, I'm sure you will sometime this week in my inbox. It'll be this afternoon. But it's a little conjunctive adverb called then. Then. And that whole verse hangs on that four-letter word. So if we desire those things that we just mentioned, then we have to say, what are the conditions? Well, the conditions are simply these, that the people of God who are called by his name will humble themselves and pray and seek his face. Notice it did not say seek his hand, but seek his face and turn from their wicked ways. Humble, pray, seek, and turn. And here's what we need to remember, church. The problem is not on God's end. For he wants to hear us from heaven. He wants to forgive our sin, and he wants to heal our land. In fact, the problem is, it is not on God's end. He made it clear through the prophet Jeremiah. He says, call unto me. Call, cry out to me. Call unto me, and I will answer you, and I will show you things that will blow your mind. It's worded a little differently in the, in the King James Version, but that's basically what it's saying. But the contingency, you know what a contingency is. You've you know, maybe you've bought a house on a contingency contract that says, you know, we're going to, we'll buy this house when we sell the one we're living in now. If this happens, then this will happen. It's a contingency. The contingency is this, that the people of God must humble themselves and pray and seek his face and turn from their wicked ways. So I guess the question that always comes to my mind when I look at that is this, what keeps us from doing that? What keeps us from doing that? I think it's a fair question. If you will permit me, church, and I've, I've really wrestled with this, <laughs> I'm going to step off the track and just take a little bit of a departure from what would normally be shared on a day like this from this verse. I know there are pastors all over the country, probably at this very hour, sharing from, from this verse. And there are things that can certainly be gleaned from all that is there. But I want to take a little bit of a departure because this verse is speaking to us in a collective sense. It says, if my people who are called by my name. How many here are today are people of God? Let me see your hand. If my people. And we can join in with that, with that prayer. And I know you enthusiastically do that. But I think it's also possible that when, it's, when you're dealing with a whole group, it doesn't have the same impact to us personally. Because I'm kind of hidden in the group. And so it says, if my people, not if this person. And it's certainly important for us to understand this contingency, this balance of this contingency as, as a people and the cause and effect of the nature of it. But I, I want to take this concept of contingency and personalize it to you and me as individuals. I know you've heard this adage, and it's true, and you've, we've all had to live it out, but choices have consequences, right? Can you say that with me? Choices 
Bad choices will challenge you with bad consequences. Conversely, good choices will yield good consequences. As a pastor, I'm always amazed, if I'm honest, at the people who make bad choices and they're just shocked when they show up with bad consequences. It's as if somehow someone had convinced them that they could make a, a bad choice and the outcome would just be wonderful. And how many know it doesn't work? How many have lived enough life to know it doesn't work like that? If then, it's the contingency. If this happens, then this will happen. If my people will humble themselves and pray, then I will. How many, though, of you have ever prayed for something and it did not happen? Come on, who's honest? Who's honest? Balcony, are you awake this morning? Wave at me, balcony. Okay. How many in the balcony, have you ever prayed for something and it did not happen? Raise your hand high. There's a bunch of them. Main floor, how many of you have ever prayed for something and it did not happen? Bunch of faithless people here today. <clears throat> no, you wanted a certain job. You, you needed a certain financial blessing. You, you spotted the person you wanted to be your husband or your wife. And you prayed and you were sure. You knew when you laid eyes on that person, that's for me. You prayed for a certain contract. You prayed for healing. And it just didn't happen. Well, if that's like, if that's you, then like me, you've discovered probably this. An unanswered prayer is a mystery and a frustration. Right? You with me? Unanswered prayer is a mystery and a frustration. Our daughter Sheridan was here this week and we had some wonderful conversations with her, and somehow one evening we got on some topic, and she mentioned to me a phrase that she had run across in something she'd been reading. I don't uh, remember exactly where she found it. And I'm going to tell you, I don't really like the phrase, and uh, you're, you're probably going to find some point of it that you, some aspect of it that you disagree with, and, and so have I. But that doesn't eradicate the fact that there's some truth to the phrase. So listen carefully. This is the phrase. It said this. Conflict arises when overreaction meets or encounters underreaction. Just chew on that a second. Conflict arises when overreaction meets underreaction. Let me tell you the first reason why I don't like that phrase. Because it's real clear which category I'm in, okay? How often have you seen me have an underreaction? Okay? So I felt like it immediately profiled me. I just was kind of resented it from the get go. But it's true. Conflict arises when overreaction meets underreaction. Let me say it another way. I'm going to take some liberties here. Conflict arises when high expectation is met with low performance. Let me, let me bring it right down here and pull it close. Frustration is shrouded in mystery 
when you have passionately pursued God about something with high expectation and the response made you feel as though the heavens were brass. You were going after God. Everything that you had. Your faith was high. You got with your prayer partners. And it just felt like the heavens were brass. And the frustration intensifies and doesn't get any better when God doesn't seem to answer your prayer. And then you come to church and all around you are just people who are receiving blessing after blessing after blessing. And you're going, oh, there's another testimony. Look what the Lord has done for them. Look what the Lord. I know that doesn't happen in Bethesda. I know that doesn't happen. But before we allow ourselves to get angry with God, before we get lost in the mystery, before we drown in the frustration, I have a verse I want to bring to you today. I'm going to ask you, as I read it, to look at it from the perspective of the contingency that is in it. It's Psalm 84, verse 11. For the Lord God is the sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold. Is that the end of it? There's more? No good thing will he withhold from those who walk Uprightly. Now, okay, we're going to look at it as a contingency. It's kind of backwards in this phrase because the effect is given before the clause. So let's, let's turn it around and put the choice before the consequence. For those who walk uprightly, there's the choice, God will withhold no good thing. There's the consequence. When we consider this verse, I'm just asking, does it possibly begin to challenge us to wonder if in our pursuit of God we have been pursuing in the wrong place? Because our goal in prayer tends to be the good thing that we want, the good thing that we're sure we need, something we are feeling absolutely passionate about. Lord, I I really want that job. I really need that contract. We really need a financial blessing. I really want that car. I really want her. I really want healing. And we pursued the good thing. Are those good things? Yes. Yes, they are. And while we may be pursuing all these good things, is it possible that we miss the point by not pursuing what an upright heart is? Or what an upright walk is. And if that's true of us, and we've allowed our pursuit to start in the wrong place, then then we can feel like our prayers are not being answered. Then when that happens, it's very easy for us to have a quite inappropriate response. It usually looks like this. We tend to judge God instead of examining ourselves. Well, God's not answering my prayer. did for him. For her. Guess he's just not listening to me. It's his fault. I prayed. 
Are you breathing out there? And that's an inappropriate response, according to this verse. God, why aren't you answering me? Why can't you hear me from heaven? We sang about it this morning. Why am I not getting the good thing that I've asked for? And all the while, God is responding back to us, I want to. I really want to give it to you. I do. I won't withhold anything from those who will walk uprightly. It's the contingency. We don't want the contingency. We just want what we want. And too many of us are wondering, why is a good thing, the good thing that I'm praying for, why is it not coming my way? And here's what I would say. It's not because God doesn't want to give it to us, because it says it right here in the scripture that we just read. But rather, we need to look honestly at ourselves to see if we have the uprightness to even receive the good thing that we're asking for, or, hear me, the uprightness of heart to sustain and give longevity to what God wants to give you. It's one thing to get it, but God has to be assured that when he gives it to you, he can trust it in your hand for the long haul. That once you get it, you don't say, thanks, take off running. God does want to bless us, church, but he is very careful about what he puts in our hands when we do not yet possess the character to keep what he wants to give us. You want me to find something else to preach this morning? The word upright simply means this, means integrity. We get the word integer from it. If you took math, and I hope you did somewhere along the way, you'll remember that an integer is a whole number. So what does it mean? It means wholeness. It's a word that the Bible uses in the Hebrew, which means complete or entirety. So for an upright person, if it's, we're talking about a person with integrity, a person with wholeness, it means every area of their life, every day of their life is under the lordship of Jesus. That's what an upright person is. A person who walks uprightly is not a perfect person, but it is a person who has every area of their life submitted to God. And they have not categorized their life or compartmentalized their, their, their life by saying, this is the God-controlled part and this is the me-controlled part. And this is the God-controlled part and this is what I'm going to have say over. It doesn't mean that they are perfect. It simply means that absolutely no part of their life is off limits to God. I could spin that for a minute if I needed to. I don't think you need me to. But if I were sitting where you're sitting this morning, I probably would say, Lord, hearing that, can I just ask you, have I put the off-limits sign on any part of my heart to you? Have I done that? And he'll reveal it to you. He'll let you know. But a person who wants to walk uprightly, it is very clear that God can go after any part of their life because to them, he is Lord and he is God. He's not just Lord on Sunday, but he is Lord every day. So the integrity is complete, and it flows into their marriage. It flows into your career. It flows into your student life. In fact, integrity flows into your re recreational time, whether it's softball or even golf, hallelujah, or bowling. Really, Dan? Now, wait, okay, Dan, that's off limits. That's off limits. Integrity moves into your computer time. 
Integrity moves into your thought life. Integrity or uprightness is a man or woman who wants and desires every area of their life under the lordship of Jesus. He's Lord when you're driving. He's Lord when you're, he's Lord when you're driving on 820. Really? Or 35? No, I don't know. No, 35. He's Lord when you're walking on your campus, students. He's Lord when you're at work with an environment that is anything but Christian possibly for you. To those who walk uprightly, very simply, Jesus is Lord. True Christianity means that God always takes the preference, no matter where they're at, no matter what they're doing. It means every day in every area of their life, nothing is off limits to God. And one of the problems that we have, I'm gone, I've stopped preaching, I'm now meddling, okay? Just telling you. One of the problems that we have in America today is that there are plenty of pulpits telling people that God just wants, to have you, wants you to have a good thing. And that's true. But they leave off the part that says, but you must walk uprightly. That there is a condition, there's a contingency to this. And those pulpits are not quite as quick to say, you must examine your own heart. I find it really interesting to note that when the Bible presents one of the most prolific chapters on marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, that the beginning of it is working character before it, it runs you into marriage. For there is no place where your Christianity will be more challenged or outworked than in a marriage. Husbands, that was very risky for you to say amen. I want you to know that. But look, look, look at the order of this. In fact, I can't tell you that I've always really looked at the strategy of how Paul presents this in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, and you know, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. But instead, be being filled, it's the present continual tense of the verb, be being filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, hallelujah, making music unto the Lord in your hearts, and give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Husbands, love your wives. That's the way it went. And just before that, it says, and wives, submit to your husbands. We're in Texas. I got a duck. Come on, wives. You know what I'm talking about. And you know you need the Holy Ghost to do that too, don't you? Where's the sisters in the house today? Come on, talk to me. What's interesting is that Paul was saying that you need to be being filled with the Holy Spirit, not just so you can speak in tongues and prophesy, which I hope you do, but you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that you know how to speak appropriately in English. Go ahead and say something so I can get a drink here. So that you can say something polite to your family. You can be nice to your wife. Ladies, I'll leave that alone. I'll leave that alone. <laughs> when the instruction comes from Paul that you are to be filled with the Holy Spirit, he's saying that you need to be filled not so that it affects or 
touches your church life for an hour and a half, two hours. But rather, the filling of the Holy Spirit is designed and purposed to touch every part of your life so that you can walk uprightly. Is this, maybe I'm the only one, I'm slow to catch on. Have you ever drawn that correlation in Ephesians 5? That right after he says we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit, then he talks about marriage. I I think it's strategic. That's the way I see it today. I think it's strategic. But he doesn't stop there. You know what the the chapter says. It says shortly after, he says, children, obey your parents. And then it speaks how fathers are to correct their children. And then it goes even further by essentially saying that even if you have a demonic boss, you, you still serve them as unto the Lord. That's what Paul tells us. Because you're not serving them, you're serving Christ through your job. So when you put this all together, you basically see that Paul is instructing us how to do life by submitting to a husband who's difficult, by loving a wife who has issues, by dealing with your children who are rebellious and defiant, and and to work a difficult job. And he says, how do you do this? You do this by being filled with the Holy Spirit so that you can deal with life as it comes your way. The contingency is this. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. He's the one. This is so wonderful about our God. He may ask that of us, but he doesn't leave us without the power and ability to it. He knows we are powerless in and of ourselves. He's the one who even gives us the power and ability to walk uprightly by giving us the Holy Spirit. Can somebody say amen, please? So pursue God so that he can put in your hands the very thing you've been praying for. So all that to say this. When you feel like your prayers are not being answered, something's being withheld, be very careful, church, about blaming God. Be very careful about blaming God. Sometimes the good thing he's longing to give you is way bigger than your character. And that may be the issue. He's wanting to give you a good thing, but he can't yet put it in your hand because something needs to happen on your end. The character needs to be built up, needs to rise up. And here's something we really need to understand and embrace. Premature good things... As much as you want them, as good as they look on the surface, as good as they could possibly be, if they are premature and coming to you, they can very easily turn into bad things. We don't really believe this. At least we live like we don't believe it. But it is dangerous for us to to receive something before it's time. Here's what we run the risk of. We run the risk of abusing the good thing. We, we run the risk of turning that good thing into an idol. And sometimes when we receive something prematurely from God, it can literally make us very susceptible to pride. God doesn't want to withhold the heart of God, the Father heart of God, does not want to withhold anything that is good. But he will do so if the heart of the receiver is not in the condition it needs to be to receive it. 
If that's the case, we dare not judge him for that. So maybe today is about getting us to change our focus. Instead of focusing on the good thing that we're asking God for. Our focus should be, God, before I ask you for one more thing, would you please make me ready for that good thing that you want to give me? God, change me. I'm so frustrated. I'm, I'm, the frustration is shrouded in mystery for me that I'm, I've been praying and praying and praying and I've been standing on your word and quoting scriptures and doing this. But Lord, change me so that I'm ready to receive and then to live out the good thing that you are longing to give me. What a wonderfully biblical approach to prayer. We always want to change someone else, change the circumstances, change whatever, change our address, change our house, change this. And all the while, what's really being required for us to receive the full measure of blessing from God is that God wants to change us. You remember the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, I'm sure. I'm really not sure where in Scripture we find a more profound contrast of two different approaches of two uh, completely different attitudes coming from the same person. I want to show it to you really quickly. I'm talking about the difference in the approach of the prodigal son, prodigal son himself in Luke 15, 12, as opposed to how he approaches his father in verse 19. Let me show it to you quickly. Verse 12 is, what, is where the prodigal son, he comes to his dad and he says, Father, give me. Give me. That which is mine. And truly, he received something. He received something he was not able to handle. He squandered it. He squandered it all with prodigal living. He got a cash payout for which he did not have the character to support. And that lack of character sabotaged the good thing called inheritance. But compare that first approach of, Father, give me, to his second approach that he made to his father after he had crashed and burned, was starving, would have been thankful to eat what the pigs were eating. And all the wheels had fallen off his life completely, as we would say today. But this time, in verse 19, chapter 15, he doesn't say, Father, give me, which was his first approach. This time he says, Father, Make me, make me, make me, make me just a hired servant in your house. Then what we see is that when that becomes the posturing, when God has you in that condition, when you have truly humbled yourself in your approach to God, what we see clearly in this parable is that the Father heart of God cannot hold itself back. That's where we see the full expression of no good thing will he withhold from them who walk uprightly. It's the contingency. Because the entire time, and I know your circumstances would cause you to doubt this or think I'm crazy to even tell you this today, but the entire time the Father is wanting, he is just passionate about wanting to lavish that good thing upon those who are truly ready to receive it. And I ask you, Tell me in Scripture where you can find a more passionate image, a more passionate picture of the 
abundance of the Father heart of God than we see in verses 20 of Luke 15 where it says, and then when the young man was still a long way off, his father saw him. Forgive me, I, I know I get a little emotional about stuff. I had to park there for a second when I was looking at this. I, I see the dad standing wherever he possibly was near the house, looking way down the road. His heart has been broken by a son who'd been rebellious and who had taken what he'd given him and pfft, tossed it away as if it meant nothing. What did that really feel like to that dad? What, 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 what his true emotions were, what he had worked hard for, what he was hoping to give his son to bless him and, and give him a good thing, and, and the son took it and threw it away. But he sees him a far way off from a distance. And I just, you know, I just lived there for a second, seeing his son a far way off. He hadn't seen him in a while. Something about what I see, something about the way he walks. Mm. That looks like my son. That looks like my boy. Something about his stride. Something about the way he carried himself. And the father recognized him even from a distance. Oh, it's a wonder that he did based upon what the son had done and where he had been and the condition he was in. How could he possibly recognize him? But when the son was still a great way off, his father saw him. And something began to beat in his heart. That's my boy. That's my boy. And he had compassion on him. And what did he do? He could not hold himself back. Bible tells us clearly that he ran to the boy. Can you see that playing out like a movie in your mind today? A father who should have rejected him and been furious with him. He couldn't help himself. He ran to the boy. He could no longer withhold. And he fell on the boy's neck and he kissed him. The son repented and he confessed that he was no longer worthy to be called his son. And then, conjunctive adverb, and then the avalanche of good things could not be held back once the boy had repented. And the father said to everybody, bring it! Come on, bring it! Bring the best robe! Get the ring, that, that, that really nice ring that I've been holding. Get that, put that on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Get the fatted calf. Bring it, come on, bring it. And can we all see here this morning that the flood of good things, the avalanche, whichever metaphor you want to use, came rushing to that young man when his approach changed, when his approach to his father changed from father give me to father Make me. That was the difference. And what a dramatic difference it was. The prodigal son says, Father, give me. A a repentant son says, Father, make me. And no good thing will he withhold from them who walk uprightly. For those who walk uprightly are people who have learned how to, and I'm coming back full circle, how to humble themselves, how to approach with humility, how to know really, you want, you want to know the best way to experience humility? Just remember where you came from. 
Just remember the rock from which you were hewn. Remember the truth about yourself. You really ain't all that in a bag of chips. It probably right beneath the surface for most of us, because we work on polishing our exterior and our presentation. We've got that. We've learned that. We've admired other people who have a great presentation, and we mimic that. We become some composite of all that we've seen. We get all that together. You want to know how to be humbled? Just remember who you are and where you came from. A person who walks uprightly knows how to humble themselves. And they will pray. And in praying, they will seek his face and turn from their wicked ways. The scripture's clear, being heralded all over this country at this very hour. And then, what happens when a person does that? What is the contingency? What is on the other side of that little bitty word? It says, then God will hear from heaven. He will forgive your sin. And he will heal your land. Now, church, I have intentionally and deliberately personalized it today. Believing in my heart is what God called me to do and told me to do. But there's no way I can bring this message to you without saying not only is that for us personally, but it is for us as a nation that we must humble ourselves and pray and seek his face as a nation and turn from our wicked ways because as a nation we must desire that he will hear from heaven, forgive our sin, and heal our land. Can you say amen to that this morning? Would you bow with me for a moment of prayer? I'm going to pray for you in just a moment, but I do want to ask this. Please, no one moving around at this moment. Please. Is there anyone in the house? I just felt prompted about this right, um, right before the service today. Is there anyone in the house who by uplifted hand would say to me, Pastor Dan, yeah, um, truth is, I'm that prodigal son. I'm that prodigal daughter. And uh, not real proud to admit this, but here's where I'm at today. I'm far from God. I've uh, wandered away. I knew better, maybe. But the truth is, something's been happening in my life that has brought me to the point, and I ended up at Bethesda Church this morning, and I think the reality has hit me that it's time for me to come home. Is that true for anybody? It doesn't matter to me if it's one or 10 or 20. Is that true for anybody? If so, would you just lift your hand very quickly? Yes, ma'am, I see that. Yes, ma'am, I see that in the back. Anyone else? Anyone else? Okay. I want to pray for you in just a second. Who's here and by uplifted hand, you would say, Dan, I've, I've really been frustrated with God about prayers. I've been praying that just, it's just the heavens have been brass. I just unanswered. But today, I'm asking for God's help by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you're going to ask me to pray with you, and I will do that in just one second. I need to change my approach from Father, give me 
to Father, make me. Is that anybody in the house today? Would you just lift your hand if that's you? I'm going to change my approach from Father, give me to Father, make me. I see them everywhere, every section of the building. Let's stand together and let's pray this morning.